Hello, beloved. It's a good turnout for a new block of Sunday school classes. Okay, what we're going to do, if you want to turn to Ephesians, I'm going to do a six, well, actually, it's more than six now. It's probably going to be seven or eight studies um, on the whole armor of God. It will precede a study that Brother Ray is going to do that will take us into our summer break. He's going to do a series on the warnings in Scripture. I thought it very apropos to look at the whole armor of God before we look at warnings of Scripture. Amen? So if you turn to Ephesians 6, this morning we'll look at verses 10 through 12, next week again part 2, and into 13, and then we'll look at each piece um, of the armor individually for the most part in, in the following week. So let me open in prayer, and we'll look at this together. Father, thank you for this beautiful February morning. Thank you for your loving kindness and grace, mercy shown to us in the sending of your Son on our behalf. And now, um, as redeemed saints, we are um, soldiers of yours um, our commander-in-chief, um, help us to understand the instructions um, given to us, the armor provided for us, um, to stand um, as uh, victors um, in the victorious one, Jesus Christ. For it's his sake we pray. Amen. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. This ends the reading of God's Word. Uh, one of the Apostle Paul's most uh, distinctive features um, in his epistles um, is that he opens them with, with doctrinal instruction, and then he, he closes them with um, application um, of that doctrine to the Christian life. Um, you're probably very familiar with that. For instance, in Ephesians um, chapters 1 through 3, it's filled with indicatives, okay, fact, 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 as regards our salvation. And then chapters 4 through 6 are filled with imperatives, um, commands, do this, do that, because of all that Christ has done. For instance, um, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, we read, um, He, our Lord, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you read on through chapter 1, we read that uh, we have been chosen in him before the foundation of the, of the world, um, predestined, adopted into God's family. Uh, we've been given his love, forgiveness, enlightenment, knowledge, power, and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, a guaranteed inheritance. And then in, into chapter 2, we read that uh, you he made alive who were dead. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not, a result, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Even faith itself um, is, is a gift. Then we get to chapter 3 and we see the mystery of the gospel revealed. In verse 6, we read that the mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then here, at the end of Ephesians, uh, we see Paul engage in this uh, characteristic practice yet again. When we get to chapter 4 and on through 6, it's just applications of of all those principles of truth um, given to us in Christ Jesus. We're called, for instance, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Live your life, in other words, in a way that, that matches your position in Christ. Here's your position. Um, live according to that by the grace given to us that enables us to do that. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15, Paul directs us to, to look carefully then how you walk. Okay, here's your identity in Christ. Be careful now how you how, how you walk. Paul spells out how believers are to walk out, to live out um, their, their Christian lives. We're to submit to Christ. All Christians are to submit to Christ. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands are to love their wives. Husbands are to wash their wives in, in the word and so on. Children are to obey their parents. Slaves are to obey their masters. And after outlining um, all of these um, relationships within the household of faith... Um, Paul issues this stirring call to all Christians. Because most of our problems come relationally. Amen? And he calls us to to stand firm um, against the spirit of this age. And to clothe ourselves in the spiritual armor given to us from God. Be strong, notice, in the Lord, be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of his might. Now, one prominent aspect of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, um, with regard to the whole armor of God, it's it's often observed that its connection, the armor, its connection um, is with the Lord himself, who is referred to as a divine warrior. Exodus, for instance, chapter 15, verse 3, says, The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Isaiah 59, verse 16, we read, He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So this picture of our Lord, Paul draws from, and here in chapter 6, verse 10, notice, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God. 
Finally, he says. In other words, the last truth I want to drive home to your hearts, take heed, listen up, he says. So Paul, um, in some ways, is in the position that Joshua was as the torch was handed to him from Moses. And he was instructed to be, be strong, be strong. And that was before his uh, military campaign um, under orders to to launch a, a theocratic invasion with the sword. Paul, whose orders come from the same captain of the Lord's army, is instructed under the Prince of Peace not to advance in, 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 theocratic, in a theocratic conquest, but rather to stand and to resist. That is, to, to stand fast and, as we'll see, pray. In order to resist a very lively opponent, a very intelligent opponent, So he's not exhorting these soldiers, that is the church, um, to make some some quick moving attack. Instead, he says, I want you to make a stand, verse 11. Stand your ground, verse 13. And stand firm, verse 14. So the idea, really, is is to hold um, the, the crown of the hill, so to speak. Did, 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 did you ever play as a child, um, King of the Hill? Across the street um, from our house growing up, we lived across the street from a, a church, the church that my parents attend now, but w- when they did, this is back in the 70s, when, when they uh, did an add-on to the sanctuary, they, they dumped all the dirt in the playground, and, and it was like two 10-foot-high dirt mounds that we played on for years. And we used to play King of the Hill, and if you know the king of the hill, the strategy is to stand firm atop the hill. Okay, As your opponents run up the hill, you don't go after your opponent or they'll take you down. You stand firm. You hold the crown of the hill. And as they, as they come up the hill, you resist them. That's, that's the idea. That's what this is. So the, the same is true when Satan attacks. You don't run after him. You don't, you don't need to begin to curse him, you stand and you resist him. This is Paul's instruction. Now, unfortunately, a bunch of, of, of contemporary evangelicalism and Pentecostalism um, refuses to apply that principle, and they spend a lot of time and effort running after, if you will, the devil and yelling at him, and, you know, there's no need for that. Stand, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God. Stand, stand, stand. So seeing the Christian life as, as spiritual warfare, as, as Paul does, um, he, he summons Christ's church to battle against the spirit of this age. And, and beloved, all this armor is to protect really basically two things. How you think <laughs> and, and how you feel or, or what you do with your emotions. 
So it's to protect emotions and it's to protect thinking because this is the deceit used by the devil. It's to get your thinking off course. And we'll see how this, how all these pieces apply. And notice where to stand, verse 11, against, and here it is, the schemes of the devil. Schemes, ploys, tricks. He calls us to be well-armed in the Christian faith. In Romans 13, verse 12, it says, put on the armor of light. The armor of light. Referring to truth. Personal holiness, personal godliness, truthful speech. The power of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7, Paul refers to the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. It refers to truth, God's truth, with which we must equip our Christian lives with. Truth, truthfulness, as we'll see, walking in truth, standing in truth, being truthful, because God is a God of truth. And then look at 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. Paul says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy what? Strongholds, fortresses, the idea. So the imagery is that we as God's people are surrounded by all kinds of fortresses, that is, ideological strongholds filled with lies. Various worldviews. And we must be equipped with the truth and live truthfully in order to tear them down. That's the idea, to break them down. And that is that the truth of Christ reigns supremely in our lives, in our ministries, and we are engaged in upholding God's truth. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. In other words, what Paul is conveying here is that the Christian life is not, it's not a playground. It's a battleground. Big boy football, as we like to say. So those, remember, those Christians to, to whom Paul is writing, the church of Ephesus, they, they were living um, in a very hostile, um, pagan environment, surrounded by all, kind of, all kinds of ideologies. Christians were the minority in Ephesus. So there was a combat between two, two very different kinds of thinking and doing. So here he... He, he draws uh, on this image of warfare, uh, which was very appropriate, very applicable. It's no different for us. Amen? These were struggling Christians um, trying to live out their, their Christian lives day by day. In, in the presence of those, okay, mind you, in the presence of those who saw nothing wrong with sexual immorality, debauchery, 
they worshipped a pantheon of, of pagan gods. You know, there was a pagan temple on every corner, basically. They were surrounded by this. So they, they, they those people, these pagans, practice all kinds of things in, involved with paganism. Fertility rites, R-I-T-E, fertility rites, spells, incantations, divination, secret ceremonies, uh, the worship of creatures rather than the creator, or the worship of the emperor himself. These are the struggles they face, and he says, stand and resist. Put on the whole armor of God. So in other words, Paul wants us to be ready um, for this, this combat zone. And the, the war zone is everyday life. Everyday life. And he reminds us that the devil is an extremely ingenious enemy. Very clever, very crafty. Put your guard down. Before you know it, you're in a really bad place. We can all testify to that. Uh, The Puritan Thomas Brooks said this. I love this quote. Listen to this. Quote, Satan loves to sail with the wind. He knows your virtues. He knows your vices. If he can turn your virtues against you and into vices, he will. If he can take your vices and turn them into your ruin, he will. He's a very cunning and ingenuous opponent, end quote. So, so Paul wants us to under, understand who our enemy is so that we do not underestimate that enemy. This is what he's after. So we're, we're all in the Lord's army because we're Christians. There are no lone soldiers. Lone soldiers are, are easy to pick off. And a sniper can just, you're done. We're, we're an army. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, he says to young Timothy, he, he instructs him to fight the good fight and to lead the church in fighting the good fight. Advance the truth in the midst of darkness. He says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, fight the good fight of faith. And then in his second letter, Paul sum, writes, he, he, he sums everything up, having suffered years of, of persecution and, and all, and he says, I have fought the good fight. So we, we, we have a great foe, personal devil. And just to get an idea of this, in case you're not familiar, um, you can turn to Revelation 12 and understand that the, the war has been won by Christ, Amen. Satan's a defeated foe. And again, the, the illustration of, 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 of D-Day versus E-Day, uh, V-Day, D-Day, V-Day. Between D-Day and World War II and, and V-Day, the, the war was typically won a year before it actually ended, right? D-Day, victory, was imminent. Thirteen months later, we had V-Day. Christ has come, that's D-Day. And V-Day 
is when he comes again. So there's going to be battles. For 13 months, there were, there were still battles during the war, um, and there's battles until Christ comes, although the war has been won. So in, in verse 5, we see that uh, uh, the, the woman, that is Israel, um, the, the, the promised people of God, um, through them, through that line would come Messiah. He came, um, he, he came as a male child. He commenced his ministry, inaugurated the kingdom, that is the king. He died, he was raised from the dead, he ascended up to his throne, caught up to God and to his throne, verse 5. And then the woman <coughs> fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days, three and a half days, three and a half years rather, time, times, and half a time. That is the time between the first and second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a war arose in heaven after Christ conquered sin and death from the grave. And Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and his angels fought back. He was defeated, of course, and no longer was there any place in heaven for him to make accusations against God's people because Christ, the incarnate Son of God, now stands there and represents his people. No accusation can stand. So he's cast out of heaven, and now he's subject to this earth. He no longer can go before the throne of God and accuse you, saying, well, look at Mark's life. Look at John's life. Calls himself a Christian. Christ is there to rightly represent me. So now he accuses the minds of believers to cause you to doubt, to, to, to know for certain that you're in Christ, assured, and so on. Notice the dragon is furious. He knows his time is short. He's been thrown down to the earth, verse 13. The serpent poured out water like a river with his mouth after the woman. That represents deceit. If you can't deceive God's people, then you persecute God's people. And then the earth comes to help the woman and it opened up its mouth and swallowed up the river, and the dragon had poured the dragon had poured from his mouth. That's all apocalyptic language and, and very picturesque, picturesque type of uh, referring to things. And then notice verse 17. And then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who's the rest of her offspring? You, the church. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So the war is real. Um, the enemy is real. And the devil's greatest hoax is to convince people that he doesn't exist. Right? Okay, Satan is no mere symbol for evil. He's a true, real personality. He's a real spirit. He's a conquered foe. Christ came and crushed the serpent's head. He knows his time is short. He's, he's flailing around like a wounded animal, and he is going to, to, to attack anyone he can, knowing his time is short. He's very angry. He knows he's been defeated. That's the idea. 
Scripture refers to him as Satan, as the God of this age, as a liar, as a murderer, as the prince of the power of the air, the serpent of old, our adversary, Beelzebub, Belial, the great dragon, the roaring lion, the ruler of demons, and the tempter. All names necessary um, to understand something um, of this great foe. And all we're called to do is what? Stand and resist. So this is why Paul says we must be strong in his might, in, in God's might, and put on his armor, the armor he provides. Because this is a, is a formidable foe. Three enemies that we face are what? The world, flesh, and the devil. So the world is, is the system around us that is opposed to God. We live in it, but we're not to be of it. And, and it constantly tries to squeeze us into its mold. The mold of anti-truth, anti-God, anti-Christ. So that's the world. And then you have the flesh, it's the enemy within. Our old fallen nature that, that's opposed to God. Flesh lusts against the spirit, spirit lusts against the flesh. It's the inner war, the inner battle that we all have as, as believers. And the devil comes along, okay, and he's a fallen angel known as the prince of darkness, and, and he strategizes in using the world and the flesh against us, all for the sake of our ruin. If he can ruin our testimony of Jesus Christ, he's very happy with that. If he can get us to doubt our salvation, he's very happy with that. If he can get us to live our lives looking as though we're not even in Christ, he's really happy with that. If he can get us to buy into false doctrine, he's super excited about that. He wants to throw our Christian lives into devastation. Therefore, must protect the way we think and how we feel in the midst of, of this life within the world system and our flesh warring against the spirit within as he tries to manipulate those two things. Very important to understand um, that Satan is, is not God's evil equal. Amen? As Luther said, the devil is God's devil. Satan is not omnipresent. He can only be at one place at one time. He's not omnipotent, all-powerful. He's not omniscient. Only God is. Now, you're no match for him. I'm no match for him to, to try to stand and resist him in my own strength. I'll be ruined. That's why we need God's strength and God's armor. And you stand and resist him, and what does he do? He flees. Flees. So there is a great conflict. It's a spiritual war. Um, we have a great victor, victory already that is ours in Christ Jesus. 
who shed his blood, who conquered sin and death, crushed the head of the serpent. And again, his time is short. He's very angry. He, he roams about like a roaring lion, lion, seeking whom he may what? Devour. Two things. Stand and resist. Now, though the victory is ours in Christ, we need a, a degree um, of discernment um, to assist us in the spiritual battle. Um, Paul does not want us to be naive to the wiles and the tricks and the schemes of this unseen enemy. He's very stealthy, very, very tricky. And schemes here, Paul refers to schemes, those are methods, methods of the enemy, carries the idea of, of craftiness, of being cunning, very tricky, stealth deception. In one primary scheme, as, as we close up this first study, um, one primary scheme is mixing just enough truth with error to, to make that air plausible. Amen? He mixes lies with, with a little bit of truth. That's why the world is filled with false religions. There's just enough truth to draw people in. So he, he misquotes scripture, he misuses scripture, and he creates and, and peddles false doctrine through men, through people. False teaching, false religion. He, 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 it's like he, he lies in wait, just waiting for God's children to be off guard so that, that they can be tossed to and fro by every wind of what? Doctrine. Doctrine. So the, the whole system subtly, craftily, and supernaturally deceives. That's how he works. He masquerades as an angel of what? Light. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. And he does that today in our day by, by way of many a TV preacher. Happy, chipper. They have a dentine smile. And when you listen to them, when you're equipped in the truth, you can detect a heretic a mile away by what he what? Says. They twist and they pervert scripture. It's another message. It's another gospel. If you're not equipped and you don't have the armor on, you could be drawn into that. You could be sucked right into it and deceived. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 13, verse 19? When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in the heart. There's no capacity within them to, to understand, to grasp 
the kingdom, let alone the king of the kingdom. Another scheme. False doctrine is first, primary. Secondly, he, he attempts to undermine God's character and credibility. And that, that, again, is to cause us to doubt God. You know, ha, from the beginning, hath God really said? You won't die. Surely you won't die, implying that, that God lied about, about the result of disobeying him, which, which would be death. Instead, he said, look, he knows that if you eat it, the day in which you eat of it, you will then become like God. God doesn't want that. He, he's jealous and afraid of that. You won't die. Same lie. To undermine the character and credibility of God. Another tactic is that he just makes the Christian life hard to live. Difficulty, trial, trauma, opposition, um, oftentimes persecution. What Paul say in, in 2 Timothy 3, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The world is opposed, the system is opposed to, to Christ and his church. So verse 12, Paul, um, notice, emphasizes over and over again. <clears throat> Let me get back to it. Verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So he, he says against four times in order to stress the opposition. That is, its kind and its source. The kind of opposition and it's the source of this opposition. Remember, when Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul himself, the, the great apostle, faced all kinds of opposition. Okay? Those who picked up stones and, and tried to crush his skull, those, that, that was flesh and blood people, amen? Okay, it, it wasn't unseen forces that just took rods and beat him five times. Stoned, left for dead, pounded on, bloodied. Okay, Paul, Paul's not in some kind of weird self-denial here. Flesh and blood people attacked him. Flesh and blood heretics entered in and tried to deceive the people that he was leading. Yet, what Paul's saying is that something very dark and sinister is behind the flesh and blood opposition. It always comes through people. But the real power comes from behind the scenes. Behind pers personalities, human personalities, behind the hostility, behind the resentment, behind the, the aggression towards and against the truth, there, there's a greater power but behind the people. It's an invisible enemy. Can't see it with the naked eye. Notice, he refers to rulers, 
those are demons. Authorities, that means there's, there's a hierarchy with, within the demonic realm. And they're strategically placed to oppose God's gospel. Truth. Minds and hearts are, are, are drawn. He, he draws into them. He tries to draw them out towards him and away from the truth. It could be through a human being that comes through the door and says, God says. There's powers behind world forces, amen? Governments, politics, Higher education, the entertainment world, the media, behind all of it, and especially religion. People sit in those desks, people sit in those positions, and those who are opposed to the gospel, behind them is an unseen force. I should say forces. And he wants us to stand Rightly identify them and resist them. And then he goes on to talk about wickedness, just simple immorality, violence, murder, you know, abortions, on and on it goes. We live in the midst of this. He works, Satan does, to divide marriages. He works to divide churches, families, all kinds of relationships. He, he drives wedges between them. And we're called the stand firm. And just to close, none of us are exempt. None of us. As soon as we think we can stand and resist the devil in our own strength, you're doomed. <laughs> you're done. You're already defeated. You've been deceived. Therefore, it's important to understand, okay, we talk about the whole armor of God, but what does it mean to, to, to gird up your loins with the belt of truth? What does it mean to have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace? What does it mean to take up the helmet of salvation? Why does he say with some pieces, have on, and with the others, he says, take up? We can talk about the armor all day, but if we don't understand what each piece means, what it represents, and how we apply it, then it's really all for nothing, and we can just sing sweet songs about the armor of God. So, that's what we're after. And as 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. The victory is ours in Christ. Now he's just saying, look, put it on. In other words, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see how that breaks down by way of each piece of the armor. Okay? Amen? Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to understand more of it as, as we move along in Ephesians 6, the coming weeks. For your glory and, and the blessing of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.